this morning from 1 Samuel. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts. If only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. Faithful and true are the words of God. This is the story of Hannah. She's living through her childbearing years, but she's not been able to become pregnant. She lives in a time of patriarchy where males have great control over females, and often it was said their only worth was that they could bear children or provide an heir. It was also in a time, as is this case, where there were multiple wives. Now, the text says this husband, Elkanah, is a good man and loved his wife and took care of her even though she had not provided an heir. But even though he cared for her, she still desperately wanted a child and others knew it. And others did not act quite so kindly as did her husband. We're told the first person in this story 
that is mean to her is her rival. Now, it doesn't say specifically the name of the rival, but we can assume it was Peninnah, who's mentioned earlier in the text, the other wife to Elkanah. In verse 6, it says, her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So this is not by accident. This is a purposeful provocation. This other woman is being mean on purpose. She's purposely trying to make Hannah feel less than or unworthy or unloved. She took Hannah's greatest point of pain and used it to provoke her and to put her down and to try to push her away. That's her first problem. The second one comes, though, when she goes up to Shiloh for worship. The story tells us she's praying so fervently and she's crying, but she's pouring her heart out to God. But her lips are moving, but she's not speaking out loud. But she's sharing with God her great pain and distress. Probably not too strong to say despair and desperation of not being able to have a child. Eli, the presiding priest at the temple, sees her and assumes that she's exhibiting this behavior because she is drunk. Verse 12 says, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. Not exactly how it was taught in my pastoral care class at seminary. To see someone in distress and go ahead and pile on. Kick them out of the place. Eli might have done better to listen first. Maybe to observe a little longer. Maybe even to ask a question to inquire further about what's going on to see if he might be of help rather than jumping to conclusions how many problems in our society or in your life happen when people jump to conclusions without doing much inquiry, without asking any questions, taking one little bit of information and deciding they know the whole story and then going on the attack to judge or accuse or put down someone else. Hannah answers Eli, No, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all of this time. You get a sense of where Hannah was when she's begging the priest not to see her as a worthless person. 
She's come to the temple, to the place of worship for help. But she's received judgments, criticisms, and attacks. These days, it's easy to find in the news or online people ready to attack the church because too often the church has been judgmental and hypocritical. Too often preaching morality all the while Christian leaders being found immoral. Preaching acceptance and love all too often for someone to come seeking that and finding judgment. A lack of welcome. A lack of love. So many think the church is only judgment and hypocrisy these days. We have opportunity to be witnesses in the world. To proclaim a different gospel. To show a different face of the church, to give those who don't know or had a terrible experience that that's not all of the church, that's not all the followers of Christ, that there is a place of love, there is a place of grace and mercy and help and hope. We can be those people in the world. We can be that church for those who come in need. We're living through a time of change right now, even as it was in Hannah's day, where things are changing in her day. If you read the scope of First and Second Samuel, you'll know they moved from a small place of worship in Shiloh to they're on the verge of a king and a great temple as the story unfolds. In times of turbulence and change, questions arise about legitimate authority and leadership and the role of the church or the role of religion in public affairs. So much turbulence in our denomination, in our country, around the world. But Hannah and the Jews of this time show us a path they make some decisions about how they're going to live their lives in the midst of criticism and attack, in the midst of turbulence and change. There's two things I want us to notice here that Hannah does. She perseveres and she continues to trust in God. At the end of verse 18, after she finishes this exchange with Eli, finally he does recant and bless her on her way. It says, then the woman went to her quarters ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Sometimes in the midst of our struggles and difficulties, we can pour our hearts out to God, and it acts as a catharsis, as a relief. I can't count the number of times I've been with a person or a family who's lost someone to death or struggling with a great pain or misery in their lives. And as they begin to tell their story and pour out their pain, they begin to weep, sometimes uncontrollably, 
And it can seem like they're going to such a dark place that they might never come back. But I have found that if I can sit and deal with my own anxiety about their pain, they're able to express it and release it and let it go. And the tears will end and the calm will come. And sometimes something surprising happens, a renewed energy for life. Sometimes even laughter right after the tears as they remember a good time with the person they've lost or they begin to see a new path for a way through what they've been struggling with. Sometimes it's good to release our pain or to sit with someone and allow them to release their pain. Hannah pours out her pain to God. It says she weeps bitterly. And yet she perseveres in prayer. She continues her conversation with God. And by the time she gets home that evening, it says her countenance was sad no longer. And then the next morning, they get up and go to worship again. It signals to us that she still is trusting in God. That she's still counting on God to help her through this difficult time. That she still believes that God has something better for her in the future. And so her hope continues to live within her even as she struggles with her situation. But finally, her hope pays off, if you will. And her prayer is answered or comes to fruition. In verse 20 it says, In due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. God uses the faithful in every generation to leave a legacy. In Hannah's case, she says if she could but have a child, she would be a witness to him of faith in the Lord and raise him and devote him to God for his whole life long. It's a legacy she's going to leave as you read through the Samuel stories. The impact of what Hannah did in faith grows and grows for the people. I've heard other women over the years say the same thing, that their greatest legacy is the child or the children that they've given birth to and raised and prayed for throughout their lives. That's one way to leave a legacy, but it's not the only way. I talked with a pastor once, a friend of mine. He was serving small churches, not making very much money. He said, you know, I'm doing my best to tithe, but I don't feel like I'm making much of an impact in terms of what God wants to do through the church. But he said, I've got a plan. I've got a savings plan. He said, I'm putting aside a little every month. So that by the time I retire and the time I die, I'm going to be able to leave the greatest gift in terms of financial giving that I will ever give to the church through my will. I want to leave a legacy for others who are coming after me in the church. It's a different way to leave a legacy for others that might come. 
And then so many of you leave a legacy as you devote yourselves to our mission and ministry, working with children or working with youth, dedicating your time and your talent to strengthening this body of Christ so that we might serve and stand as a beacon of hope and a light for others. So often a mighty legacy begins in small ways and grows to have a large impact. We see that if we're willing to persevere and trust in God, even through difficult times, that we might be like Hannah and receive the blessing for which we hope from the hand of God. God can use us to bless the next generation. Too often, I'm afraid sometimes we only think about ourselves or our own generation. And what we need from God or what we need from our faith community. Hannah's story gives us an opportunity to think about others that we do not know that will come after us. That also will be seeking God. And then ask us how might we leave a legacy? What might God want to do through you to leave a legacy of faith for the next generation? I think of these young girls who did the liturgical dance as Rob sang the Lord's Prayer. That would never be a way that I would offer my gifts to the community. But it's a way that they can, and my bet is they'll never forget the day that they got to lead in worship at Boston Avenue Church. It's so important as they learn the lessons of the importance of the gathered community. And treasure those times when we gather for worship. And they're getting the message that faith is important. And that they have gifts to share. And that they're a beloved child of God. Who's desired and treasured in the family of faith. We all have an opportunity to leave a legacy. We all have an opportunity to pass on faith to the next person or the next generation. Have you ever thought how God wants to use you to bless someone else? I remember a conversation I had one time with a woman in another church where I was the pastor. And she said, I just, I just don't feel like coming to church anymore. Some things had happened in her life and at the church. And she was a little bit frustrated and disgusted. But I knew that she was a person of deep faith. So I said to her, I understand, I think, why you don't want to come. And you're afraid you're not going to get anything out of it. But have you ever thought that maybe when you come, that God might use you to bless someone else who's come? That God might need you? To be there, not for yourself on that day, but for somebody else. God wants to use us to bless other people. God wants to use us to proclaim the gospel. To be a witness in the world to Jesus Christ. We all have an opportunity to be a part of that. We all have an opportunity 
to leave a legacy. We've been talking about these characteristics of faithful living. Leaving a legacy is one of those. Hannah's story reminds us that even though we might be going through difficult times, even though we might not be happy with the results right now of our life, that if we can find a way to persevere and continue to trust in God, we too will experience the blessings of God in our own lives. May it be so for each and every one of us. Amen. Thanks be to God.